Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In 1924, author Richard Connell published a short story titled The Most Dangerous Game. In this story, a big game hunter becomes the ultimate prey after falling off of a yacht and landing on a remote island in the Caribbean, where he meets an aristocrat who's retreated to the island after becoming bored by normal hunting. He now spends his days hunting shipwrecked sailors unfortunate enough to land on his island. The meme of the bored aristocrat who's run out of ways to entertain himself and therefore begins to seek more sinister forms of entertainment is nothing new. One might argue that the gladiator fights of ancient Rome were nothing more than giant snuff parties. Pop culture has revisited this theme repeatedly via books such as Battle Royale and most recently in the wildly popular Hunger Games series. Popular films such as Hostel, House of a Thousand Corpses and The Purge Anarchy and other films in that series, along with many, many others, have capitalized on the public's fascination with such a sickening concept. Some claim that elites in our society who participate in snuff parties actually refer to the gatherings as the most dangerous game. Countless stories have come out from people who claim to have been ritualistically victimized by elites who use slaves to entertain them via fights to the death, forcing one victim to murder the other, or by engaging in the age-old concept of hunting humans. While we might be tempted to suppose that such things are only hinted at in the minds of wacky conspiracy theorists, more than a few mainstream voices have discussed their beliefs about elite participation in murder as entertainment. Eli Roth, director of the popular Hostel films which depict human hunting, has a dubious claim at the beginning of his film which states, inspired by true events. Roth claimed to have read about poverty-stricken individuals in Thailand who would sell members of their family to organized crime, and that American and European businessmen would pay $10,000 to walk in a room and shoot them in the head. Now, we can argue about the veracity of these sordid tales for ages, but I believe one thing is clear. Human beings are capable of unimaginable cruelty to their fellow human beings. Have you heard the story of... And written on the wall... And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother, this We start telling you stories of the old country. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our myths and misdeeds, fears and fables say about us as humans. Welcome back all you lovely listeners. Hi, how are you? We're so glad you're back. How was your week? How'd that thing go? Yeah? Well, nothing's perfect. It won't last forever. Ask yourself, will it matter in a year? Will it matter in five years? If the answer's yes, ugh. But if it's not... Most likely it's not. <laughs> it's most likely not. And then yay, because years and five years go faster and faster the older you get. And unfortunately, that is what we are all doing. But on a side note, sorry about that thing. But also, you are wise, even if it's a wisdom born of pain. Yes, you've paid the price. But look how much you've gained. If you have to, you can do anything. Because you are strong. You are invincible. You are pronoun pronoun i guess so i want to leave it gender neutral i don't want to exclude any listeners well good all of you can just roar the night away but we do want to as always just 
take care of a little bit of business. I want to make sure y'all are going onto iTunes, leaving ratings and reviews. It always helps us, gives us our little daily affirmation. And those aren't so bad, no matter what you think, Jacob. <laughs> Everyone loves them. <laughs> Except you, but it's okay. okay. <laughs> also want to remind everybody that there are lots of ways you can reach out to us, such as on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at JustAStoryPod. Also check out our website, JustAStoryPod.com, for links to lots of our sources and other information, and as well as videos and clip galleries, all related to the episode's topic. And you'll see some of Sam's awesome artwork. And speaking of Sam's awesome graphic design, you can find it on t-shirts, mugs, things. It's fun. We have a link to our merchandise emporium, our web-based store. No animals were harmed in the process of making the just store merchandise that we know of. You can find that on our website, and you can also find a link to our Patreon page. All right, Patreon's a great way to help support the show, get access to many episodes, and... Also, other fun prizes such as stickers, etc. So check it out. There's also a link on our website. And one other great way to get in touch with us is the Urban Legend Hotline. That's right. We have an Urban Legend Hotline, and you can call us there at 512-222-3375. So Sam. So Jacob. Back to the story at hand. It's a super scary one. It's a doozy. It's a doozy. It's a fun one. It's an interesting one. Fun, I think, depends on... Whether or not you're a jaguar. So true. Well, today we're going to be talking about man. Man the hunter. But women roar. So true. Man as in humanity. Okay. Capital M. Got it. All right. Man the hunter. Tell me more. I'm intrigued. Well, one popular urban legend and trope that goes around is hunting humans. Yes. That fabulous movie with iced tea. And the one with John Leguizamo. The Pest. I loved it when I was like 11. I'm sure it's terrible. But you like major pain too. No. <laughs> I always walk past that in the uh, blockbuster and was like, who watches that? Like even as a kid. I saw that in the dollar movie many a time. You know, hunting humans is a story that, and trope, an idea that has been around for ages. Right. I mean, I, you can almost say that like uh, the labyrinth, the minotaur labyrinth, Perseus is a, an example of that. Oh, yeah, definitely. So it's very old story. Right, putting that man against beast or man against kind of beast. Kind of beast. That's why I said it, because he's not really totally beast. Depends on who you ask. Hurt his feelings. <laughs> I'm not hurting his feelings. Have some string. So 17th century Calvinist Richard Baxter had the famous line, of all the beasts, the man beast is the worst. To others himself, the cruelest foe. Yeah, I like that. St. Augustine of Hippo said something similar. Google it. Well, so in 1773, James Burnett reorganized and issued that idea of man the hunter theme. So James Burnett knows lots of stuff, sounds like. Oh, he could write. He said that when necessity forced man to hunt, the wild beast part of him became predominant. War succeeding hunting, and he became fiercer than any other animal, when not subdued by laws and manners. And this is even before there's ideas of, of evolution and social Darwinism and, and man's place among the evolutionary tree and hierarchy is even about. People are like, we have been warring since time immemorial, and it's because of our hunting animalistic nature. Yeah. 
Okay, but is it true? Well. Okay. That's the just keep, just let me keep going noise. That's the one. We'll get to it. Okay. Hold your war horses. Okay. I'm holding them. You're a mighty strong Amazonian. I mean, chariots don't drive themselves. You know what I'm saying? But the idea of man the hunter really became solidified in kind of modern thought and anthropology in the 60s, um, where there was a large conference held where all the contemporary anthropologists got together. And their caftans with their statement necklaces and Weasley little glasses. Yeah, I know. I'm sure there were ascots, (laughs) tweed. Uh, no, you're thinking of the English department. Oh, there's tweed. There's there are elbow pads. There may be elbow pads, but they're sewn onto like batik fabric. But it introduced some of those ideas of man the hunter and basically our entire modern nature is related to our ancestors being great hunters. Uh-huh. So the entire essence of human nature comes down to killing stuff. Not just killing stuff, you know, being organized, having a social group where the men can go out and hunt and the women can stay home and they can gather berries and take care of the children. I don't want to gather berries. Too bad. (sighs) Roar. Get the berries. I mean, even the idea that human first really stood up to look for prey, Okay, to look over the savanna grassland. Okay, wait, no other great predators stand up. True. <laughs> Some animals do, but not many. Like a meerkat. What are meerkats doing? Looking for eagles. Right. So. <laughs> Wait, you're just going to leave that dangling out there? They're I'm checking to make. Leave it dangling. Y'all just I, pay attention. Ah. We're going to get there. But anthropologists have leaned towards the notion that this rich, nourishing animal meat brought home by the mighty hunters and shared among the social group has pretty much. The entire reason we evolved to be what we are today is selected for larger, smarter hunters with lighter jaws and teeth. But that was not really like the most valued things in ancient society. Like if you look at what was traded for dowries and stuff, it was more sustainable foodstuffs. Like well, you're right, grain but this is further and- back. This is further back. This is Homo erectus even further. Before we had cities and agriculture. So this hunter-driven scenario... Includes the formation of these nuclear family groups. Mm-hmm. Which man, like I said, kind of goes and hunts and brings it back, and everyone sticks together because of, of that nature of things. That doesn't make sense. It makes general sense. <laughs> Is it the most sense that something can make? Are we doing shades of sense now? Is that what we're doing? We're like, I it's not that's illogical. I thought that was the norm. It's not illogical, but it's not soundly logical either. And so. Anthropologists came up with these ideas from looking at some of the fossils, but most of it was looking at... I think the word you're looking for is conjecture. Conjecture. <laughs> well, it's all conjecture <laughs> until you build up enough proof. But looking at just modern tribes like out in the Amazon, etc., and seeing how they interact and behave. So more from ethnography. Yeah. Okay. And you know, one of the most famous... I think that I was assigned some reading on the Yanamama. Yep, the Yanamama. Yanamama. Yeah, yeah we got to talk. You got to talk Yanamama. You're going to talk anthropology, right? And so Napoleon Chagnon had groundbreaking in quotes work that was assigned reading and still is talking about the warring nature of this tribe and that the greatest warriors were the most successful, and so 
They were the ones that had the most kids, and thus, they are the most fit from an evolutionary standpoint, and that's who passes their genes on. Right. Like Athens. What? I'm just saying. Sparta? Exactly. I think it's very selective theory. I think it leaves out, like, I don't know, half of cultures. You're probably right. (laughs) But this idea very much is a how you look at it kind of thing. I was going to say earlier, it is a theory in search of the facts. Because it's so easy to cross off a group when they don't fit into your, your argument. You know, and it's so easy to twist it and say, like, maybe they're not hunters anymore, but maybe they used to be. Like, it's such, you get into such weird gray area when you do things this way. Well, the thing is that, without a doubt, humanity has fought a few wars. Like seven. Had a little bit of bloodshed. A spoonful. And people like to say that these kind of, you know, wars and blood sports are related to almost a sublimation of our old... Prehistoric... Hunting, yeah. yeah. Those old genes that are still lurking inside of us. Well, that's very interesting because blood sports, you do have to wonder what the point is, right? Blood. Blood. It's not funny. So a blood sport uh, is defined as a sport involving the shedding of blood, especially the hunting or killing of animals. We used to have a little more pizzazz than we do today. A little more than the UFC fights. Well, I'm not even talking about like necessarily. Let's let's stick with animals right now. Let's forget about gladiators because that was a weird moment. And let's not look at UFC because who really wants to? Apparently a lot of people. No, but like you can just go to a bar. My dad. But we used to have a little more pizzazz with our blood sports. We used to really put some thought and effort into it. So I looked into some of the more antiquated, outdated, thank God, blood sports. And one of my favorites that I found was goose pulling. That sounds like self-pollution. It does, and it may be. So this was mostly practiced in the 17th to 19th centuries in the Netherlands and Belgium, and later in England and North America, but it originated in 12th century Spain. So how do you play goose pulling? I'm guessing you pull a goose. You do, you do. You're on to something there. Okay, so you have to have a live goose. I don't like where this is going. Neither does this goose. And then you grease its head. And then... You- Self-pollution. <laughs> exactly. Then you tie it to a pole by its feet and stretch the pole across a road. And then you get a line of men on horseback in a starting line. And then you say, go. And one man takes off. And while he is in mid-gallop astride his steed, he reaches up for the greased goose head and tries to grab it. Okay. It seems like the last person would have an advantage because the grease would be pulled off. Well. Just saying. You know, when you're organizing your goose pool, you can re-grease the goose head every time. I do my goose pulling in private. (laughs) Good, because it's kind of not legal to do it in public. Actually, it really isn't legal anymore, but still. But the aim of this was that eventually one rider would get the goose's head and pull it off of the goose. No. Yes, that was the aim. And you know what your prize was when you pull the goose's head off? The rest of the goose. The rest of the goose, yes, dinner. And sometimes a hare was substituted for a goose. Oh, you can get the ears. That's not fair. Uh, yeah, I think it was the poor man's goose. And it's usually done on Shrove Thursday, which Catholic, what is th- Shrove Thursday? Holy Thursday. Okay, got it. Um, and today, there are still places that do this in Belgium and the Netherlands, but the goose is anesthetized by a veterinarian before any pulling takes place. I don't know if that makes it okay. 
it certainly better. I think if you ask the goose, he would prefer this. Yeah, this has to have some kind of tie to like what they do in the courier with the chicken. Yeah, do whatever you gotta do. Do whatever you gotta do. Get that chicken. Yeah, I'm sure they are related. I mean, it's both. There's a greased pole. There's fowl. It's around Easter. It's around Easter. It's Harsman. Yeah. I'm sure that they have to be somewhat intertwined, but I've never seen a Cajun yank a chicken's head off. You get your costume all messed up. I know. So, in the 1830s, many contemporary writers were a little bit disgusted by goose pulling. It had become a hit in the American South. I know. Shocking. Shocking. <laughs> An anonymous reviewer in the Southern Literary Messenger wrote in 1836 describing goose pulling as a piece of unprincipled barbarity not infrequently practiced in the South and West. And William Gilmore Sims described it as one of those sports which a cunning devil has contrived to gratify a human beast. It appeals to his skill, his agility, and his strength, and is therefore to some degree grateful to his pride. But as it exercises these qualities at the expense of his humanity, it is only a medium by which his better qualities are employed as agents for his worser nature. And so definitely referencing that this is like man's primordial nature and this is how he's getting out. Yeah, it's like it may make you feel proud of yourself for a second, but you should really be ashamed that you want to feel proud of these things. <laughs> it's goose pulling shaming. Of all the shaming, I'm good with that. I'm going to remind you of that next time you're in private. And then we come to the to the tossing. Samantha, I don't want to put an explicit on this episode. I'm trying to limit this. I'm sorry. It's what Okay, so let me describe to you what the the tossing scenarios might involve. So unlike other blood sports, this one involved a man and a woman. But I mean, it could be a man and a man. I mean, we're not judging here, right? Well, right. And it could be more than two people as well. No, no judgment. No judgment. I mean, whoever, whoever you want to toss, toss with, with. I know. Good. Whatever you want to toss. You're going to wish you hadn't said that part in a minute. <laughs> okay. So these stretchy bands would be lined up across a field. Like dams? Like bands. Oh, okay. Like rubber bands-ish, but huge. They'd be lying flat on the ground. And at the end, there would be a person on each end to hold them. And then there would be a third person who would be assigned to go to the middle. And a pen would be open and various quarry would be released. And they'd be forced to run down the field over the bands. And the aim was whenever an animal ran over your band to pull it tight. So the animals lifted off the ground and then someone would run to the middle and pull back the middle like a slingshot and shoot the animal into the air. Is this real? It's real. It's really real. So wait, like what animals? Like like rabbits? Oh, occasionally a hare, but also fox were very popular. And badgers and wolves. What? And boars. That's not gonna fly very far. And wildcats. That seems dangerous. It was. If the animals ever managed to land, which I'm guessing the wildcats mainly landed on their feet because right? right they would be real pest. They'd be real pest and they'd come back for you. <laughs> But it was often fatal. So this was common in 17th and 18th century various parts of Europe. The animals could be launched as high as 24 feet into the air. I'm guessing that's not the boar. I'm hoping it is. Pigs can fly. Ta-da! Hand it over. I won the bet. And there was a Swedish envoy named Seyus Pufendorf, because of course his name was Pufendorf. And he had witnessed a fox tossing contest held in Vienna in March of 1672. And he noted in his diary his surprise at seeing the Holy Roman Emperor 
Leopold I, enthusiastically joining the court of dwarves and boys in clubbing to death the injured animals. He commented that it was remarkable to see the emperor having small boys and fools as comrades, which, to my eyes, was a little alien from his imperial gravity. So you may say to yourself, how could this be any more fun? We are launching wild boar 24 feet into the air. I don't know if that's what I was thinking. Well, if you had been, I would have an answer for you. What's that? Costumes. Oh, God. So sometimes the gentlemen would dress up as Roman warriors or satyrs or centaurs or jesters. And the ladies would dress up as nymphs, goddesses, or muses. Now, the fun didn't stop there. Oh, no, no, no. The fun didn't stop there. Don't be crazy. Please tell me they put wings on the boars. They dress the animals up. Hares and foxes usually dressed up in bits of cardboard, gaudy cloth, and tinsel. And sometimes caricatures of well-known individuals were affixed to their faces. And at the conclusion of the tossing, the guests would head off on a torchlit procession or go indoors for a grand banquet. Would they eat the tossed animals? Still in costume. I like that idea. I don't know if it's true, but let's throw it in there. Now it is. Now, dog baiting has always been... A fixture of the bud sport genre. What's dog baiting? It's where you bait a dog to fight things. Oh, right. Of course. And it's usually called whatever the bait is. You know, like it would be like boar baiting or whatever. And so I have for you today a story of human baiting. What? So this is the story of Physic and Brummy. And it's written in 1874 by James Greenwood in his work Low Life Deeps in the Potteries. And I have for you a little reporting on the subject from the paper of record. What did the New York Times not write about? It had so many pages to fill. (laughs) You know, that once a day news cycle they were trying to keep up with. It was really hard. It was really hard, okay? Extra, extra, dog fights man. In England. In England. Hey, dog bites man. That's not a story. Man bites dog. That's a story. Front page. Front page. And seriously, the headline is, A dog and a man fight in England. A dog fight is said to have taken place recently in England, which was not all a dog fight, because one of the animals engaged was a man. A special correspondent of the London Telegraph, writing from Henley, relates the story of a fight that which came off near that place between a bulldog and a man, a dwarf named Brummy, of extraordinary strength who had undertaken to fight the dog on a wager without weapons and without clothes except his trousers that's not without clothes but you thought about it you thought about a naked dwarf for a second that's fine you can be a naked dwarf i don't recommend being a naked dwarf and fighting a bulldog (laughs) the conditions of combat were that both beasts should be chained to the wall opposite and facing each other and the man was to assume and continue the position on all fours throughout the fight victory was to belong to the one which bit or knocked the other quote out of time so that in 60 seconds he was not again ready for fight so either one could bite (laughs) right yes if the man was pinned so as to endanger life he was to yield and the dog was to be taken off if the dog was stunned the man was to be declared the victor Glad we have clear rules here. According to the report, the dwarf, Brummy, held the theory that no dog, not even a bulldog, could, quote, lick a man. Dogs lick men I all know, the time. I, know, like, like, I think it's a joke. I think it is, too. It's if a the clever man, Brummy. Clever Brummy. If a man would fight. 
Both animals were without fear, the man-beast having provoked his antagonist to the last degree of frenzy by making faces and hissing at him. About 50 individuals, costermongers, roughs, pugilists, dogfighters, and the fancy generally, were there to witness the scene. The dog was the favorite in the betting during the most of the fight, which is thus described by the correspondent. There was no need to encourage the red-eyed physic, the dog. He was eager for the fray. He did not bark, but he was frenzied with passion, to the degree that tears trickled down his blunt nose, and that his gaspings became each moment more and more shrill and hysterical. Once the ghastly fight began, there was a dire fascination in it, and I noted closely the combat. The man was on all fours when the words, Let go! were uttered, and making accurate allowance for the length of the dog's chain, he arched his back catwise, so as just to escape its fangs. Physic made a second dart forward, and this time his teeth grazed the biped's arm, causing a slight red trickling. The hairy dwarf was still smiling, however. In round two, he was actually provoking it as much as he could, hissing at it and presenting forward his bleeding arm. The animal, flushed possibly with its first success, made for its opponent in a sudden leap. But the dwarf leaped forward too and smote the, bu the bulldog with a tremendous blow under the ear as to roll it completely over, evidently bewildering it for a moment and causing it to bleed freely to the frantic joy of the friends of the man-beast. Physics turned about with a dash and was again at the dwarf, and this time contrived to fix its teeth on his hairy arms, a terrible gash appearing as the man snatched the limb out of the dog's ravenous jaws. As for the dwarf, he retired to his corner for a wet of brandy and for a moment's comforting with a towel. He was, There's no way you're doing this without being liquored up. No, 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 no. He was ready and smiling again, however, for round three, and this time a fight in earnest, the dog worrying the man and the man dealing terrific blows on the ribs and the head with those sledgehammer fists, till in both the man's arms were bleeding. A horribly cheerful business was going on behind the ropes, two to one on physics. By the time round ten was concluded, the bulldog's head was swelled much beyond its accustomed size. It had lost two teeth in one of its eyes and was entirely shut up. While, as for the dwarf, his fist as well as his arms were reeking, and his hideous face was ghastly pale with rage and despair of victory. The dwarf dealt a tremendous blow to the dog under the chin, with such effect that the dog was dashed against the wall, where, despite all its master could do for it, for the space of one minute it lay still, and the wretch who had so disgraced what aspect of humanity was in him was declared the victor. Now, there's no way this is real. An old resident in Hanley came forward with a statement that nearly a half century ago, a man named Brummy, a sort of dwarf, according to his recollection, came into town and wagered that he could make a coward of any bulldog in the district and won his bet. And the Telegraph does stand by its correspondence and insist upon the truth of its report. So the New York Times did question whether or not this was true. They were like, hell, it's interesting. And that's kind of what I say. Let's publish it. Do you have a real problem believing this is true? Like, do you not believe there's one drunken short guy in England who's like, I'll kick that dog's ass. Well, I think it's one of those cases where if it's not true, it's believable because of our preset notions that, you know, that we're the hunter, that we will just go and fight an animal just to prove we're better. You know, okay, so there used to be dogs that would rat 
Yeah. Like rat terriers. Rat terriers. Or so, yeah. And so they would have men do this sometimes too. You know, they still have dogs that rat in New York. Right. But it's not the same. They're not like dropping cages and cages of rats. In no, no, no. They're like actually hunting rats. Like they have, they will go out and hunt rats like in the garbage and yeah and i think and this american life did an episode on it i think so it's really good you should listen to it but anyway brummy was victorious he kept all of our dignity intact as a human species thank you brummy but we do just continue even to this day having blood sports right like bullfights right okay so ferdinand is one of my favorite children's books i love ferdinand and it has inspired me to share a little bit more about bullfighting with you. Because it's the only blood sports story with a happy ending. <laughs> Just for Ferdinand, though. The rest of the bulls, I say, I don't know. it does not turn out well for them. So bullfighting may date back as far as 2000 BCE. Because they recently unearthed a wall painting in Crete that shows male and female acrobats confronting a bull grabbing its horns as it charges and vaulting over its back. Now, it may just be cool story, bro. Don't know if it's necessarily based on anything that was really going on, but whatever. Like, if they were just jumping on its back, very different than killing it. And it's just EO, but whatever. Now, it was a popular sport in ancient Rome, but it was really formed into what we know now as bullfighting on the Iberian Peninsula. And that's where you get that whole Ferdinand look. People may not know what Ferdinand is. It's a children's book where there is a reluctant bull (laughs) that is forced to go to a bullfight. And he just wants to smell the flowers and sit under his cork tree. Exactly. But when the men are there to get him, he gets stung by a bee and they think he's super ferocious. And he refuses to fight when he gets there and everyone gets mad. The matador is mad and the bandoleros are mad and the matador is even madder. It's a great story. There's a Disney cartoon too, which is why I think most people will know. But anyway, so from about 1726 onward, it's kind of been in the same form. And what it looks like now is attributed to one Francisco Romero of Ronda, Spain. And he introduced the muleta, which is a small cape used in the last part of the fight, and the estoque, or the sword. So what do they look like today? There are three matadors who will kill six bulls in the course of one afternoon's corrida. And each event lasts around 15 minutes. And they usually begin around 5 p.m. with a big parade where the three matadors followed by their assistants, the bandolieros and the picadores, follow them in and they're accompanied by pasadoble music. Now the costumes are very important. Their matadors wear a silk jacket which is embroidered with gold Skin-tight trousers, very key. Hot pants. Hot pants. No, hot pants are shorts. They're still hot pants. They are. And a montera, which is a bicorn hat. Now, a trada de luces, her suit of lights, may cost several thousand pounds, and top matadors go through at least six of these in a season. So when the bull first comes into the arena, out of the toril, or a bullpen, gate, the matador greets it with a series of maneuvers or passes with a cape. And these passes are usually veronicas, the basic cape maneuver. And interestingly, it's named after the woman who held out the cloth to Christ on his way to the crucifixion. Oh, good. Yes, it's religious, you see. So the crowd responds with applause based on how close the matador is willing to get and able to get to the bull's because that's where the danger is. That's the business end of the bull. It's all about facing that fierce animal. Right. Stung by a bee. He just wants to sit quietly and smell the flowers. Also, 
The tranquility on his face is very important, and his grace in his cape swinging. Now, an average bull weighs around a thousand pounds, and it goes for the cape because it's a large moving target, not because of the color. Bulls are colorblind. It's not what Looney Tunes told me. I know. I know it's not, but it's it's an urban legend. <laughs> they respond equally well to the reverse side of the cape, which is yellow. Now, they respond to the cape because of their natural instinct and years of selective breeding. They are no longer starved or tortured to make them behave this way. And bulls that face novices are supposed to be at least three years old. And those who fight full matadors should be at least four. Now, it was a point of pride on this website, the Spanish tourism website that I got a lot of this information from, that if bulls are killed to be eaten, they only get to live to be two. So there. So they get an extra year. Right. Or two. Yeah. Don't know if it's still okay. I don't either, but you know, they said so. So I'm guessing that's a common argument. Now, then the picadors come out with their lances on horseback, and they lance the bull at most three times, sometimes fewer, depending on the location and severity of the lancing, because they don't want it to be too weakened. And then a trumpet is sounded, and the banderillos, working on foot, come in and stick their banderillas, or brightly adorned barb sticks, in the bull's shoulders. And this is done in order to lower its head for the eventual kill. They wear costumes similar to those of the matadors, but their embroidery is silver, not gold, because the matador is the star of the show. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's hot pants. So after they have their banderitas in the proper place, another trumpet is sounded, and the matador begins what is called the fenea, or the last act of the bullfight. And most matadors come from bullfighting families and learn how to perform their art at a very young age. And there's an emphasis on the ability to increase but control the personal danger, maintaining the balance between suicide and mere survival. In other words, the real contest is not between the matador and that animal. It is between the matador and himself, an internal struggle. Sounds so noble. Mm-hmm. So after several minutes, the fighter takes his sword and lines up the bull for the kill. The blade must go between the shoulder blades, and because the space between them is very small, it's imperative that the front feet of the bull be together as the matador hurtles over the horns. The kill, properly done by aiming straight over the bull's horns and plunging the sword between its withers into the aorta region, requires discipline, training, and raw courage. For this reason, it is known as the moment of truth. So, like we said, you know, blood sport... And these kind of violent things that are done for entertainment. For sport. Right. Are often used as examples for our kind of sublimation of our warring hunting ways. And let's stay in Spain. And let's flip back over to humans. Because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about hunting humans. Not killing bulls with fancy sticks. We could just talk about that. Well, so... During the Spanish Civil War... Oh, this shit's about to get dark. <laughs> there was massive amounts of atrocities performed on all sides. There was the white terror and the red terror and all the colors of terror you can imagine. The rainbow terror. But one of the big inciting incidents for a lot of the terror that occurred in Spain was when the Republican government passed an agrarian reform law which gave peasant farmers, who are more than 50% of the active population, the right to become owners of the land that they worked. So this, of course, 
caused major confrontations between the farmers and the region's major landowners. So they're now allowing peasants to become landowners. Yes. I'm guessing the opposing side's aristocracy took poorly to this. Not happy. Okay. So Jay Allen of the Chicago Tribune was reporting on the Spanish Civil War. So in Badejos, near Portugal, which is a province where tens of thousands of farm workers had occupied these big estates. Now the nationalists had seized the region and they marched civilians and militiamen into the city's bull ring. And they just wanted to smell the flowers. Leave them alone. Leave them alone. Don't pick a door them. So to quote Alan, files of men, arms in the air. They were young, mostly peasants in blue blouses, mechanics and jumpers. At four in the morning, they were turned out into the ring. There, machine guns awaited them. 1,800 men and women mowed down in some 12 hours. There was more blood than you would think in 1,800 bodies. Now, I don't mean to quibble with your man as hunter thesis, but it doesn't sound like he's reveling in this. It sounds like he's a little bit horrified. Well, that's the writer. That's the American writer. He was actually fired for this, for reporting this, by his super conservative boss. So, now speaking to other American reporters, the nationalists were kind of reveling in it. Good. Now, one of the counts said... You know what's wrong in Spain? Modern plumbing. In healthier times. I mean, healthier times politically, you understand. (laughs) Oh, glad you clarified, because indoor plumbing would lead to healthier times. Right. Right. Plague and pestilence could be counted on to thin down the Spanish masses. The masses are no better than animals, you understand. No, I don't understand. (laughs) But continue. Well, and so many a quote like that. And so... Anthony Bevor is a historian, talked about another incident that occurred in Spain. Sons of the landowners organized peasant hunts on horseback. This sort of activity was jokingly referred to as the Reforma Agrarian, whereby the landless presario was finally to get a piece of ground for themselves. Does he mean does he mean a gravesite? Yes. Yeah, that he does. I don't condone the hunting of humans. So, step back from that hard reality for a second. That makes Picasso's painting make so much sense to me. And let's talk about the quintessential fictional tale of hunting humans. The With iced tea? No. The most dangerous game. Oh my god, the title's so clever. It's so good. And it's a short story by Richard Connell that was published in Collier's on January 19th of 1924. And is read by every high school student ever. <laughs> yes, I've read it like 72 times. 73 now. But, unlike some stuff you may have been forced to read, it's fantastic. And it takes like two minutes to read. Yeah, like do your homework. Go read the story. Seriously? <laughs> so in the story, it starts off with Rainsford. He is a great hunter. Mighty. Mighty. Mighty yes. And he and his friend are traveling on a steamer. His friend's name's Whitney. To Rio de Janeiro to hunt the jaguars. It will be light enough in Rio. We should make it in in a few days. I hope the jaguar guns have come from Purdy's. We should have some good hunting up the Amazon. Great sport hunting. The best sport in the world, said Ranford. For the hunter, not the jaguar. Ah, don't talk rot, Whitney. You're a big game hunter, not a philosopher. Who cares how a jaguar feels? Perhaps the jaguar does. Be a realist, 
The world was made up of two classes, the hunters and the hunties. Luckily, you and I are hunters. I don't think the jaguar thinks of itself as a hunty. Just saying. <laughs> yeah. So Rainsford is out on the deck, smoking his pipe. As you do. Middle of the night. As you do. He hears some gunshots. As you do. No, that's weird. He's on a boat. Why are there gunshots? Are there gunshots on the boat? No. No, even weirder. Out in the darkness. Out in darkness gunshots. Those are the worst kind. And then he um falls off the boat. Whoopsie doopsie. <laughs> it seems to have gone overboard. And so he begins to swim towards the gunshots. As you do. Well, no. Here's an interesting point. Gunshots mean men. Right. And that's exactly what he's thinking. Oh, there's land that way. Can't see anything. Let me find some civilization. Which... Side note, can you imagine anything more terrifying than being dropped in the ocean in the middle of the night? Like, right. that's absolutely scary. Right, and so as he comes upon the jungle and the shore, he writes, All he knew was that he was safe from his enemy, the sea, and that utter weariness was on him. He flung himself down at the jungle edge and tumbled headlong into the deepest sleep of his life. So, we have now concluded the man versus nature portion of the story, right. for anyone who's keeping track. And so, he is on the island. And now the, the man versus nature part's over. We need to look for another conflict. <laughs> so no, he's, so he starts hunting around, seeing if he can find... He's seeing if he can find civilization. You know, where those gunshots come from. There's got to be people around. Mm-hmm. And he comes across the palatial mounts. In the jungle island. Yes. Okay. So he goes to the door. and The door opened then. Opened as suddenly as if it were on a spring. And Rainsford stood blinking in the river of a glaring gold light that poured out. The first thing Rainsford's eyes discerned was the largest man Rainsford had ever seen. A gigantic creature. Solidly made and black bearded to the waist. In his hand the man held a long barreled revolver. And he was pointing it straight at Rainsford's heart. Okay. So, important to note, this is not our main antagonist we're describing. This is his henchman, correct? Well, we don't know yet, but then, right after... A man steps out of the woods. He steps down a staircase. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is General Zaroff. Bum, bum, bum. And he greets Rainsford. He recognizes him. His name, at least. Yes, he says, I've read your books on hunting. And Rainsford's like, awesome, I have fans everywhere. <laughs> And he tells Ivan, the large, beastly man, to stand down. Ivan is an incredibly strong fellow, but he has the misfortune of being deaf and dumb. A simple fellow, but I'm afraid, like all his race, he is a bit savage. Is he Russian? He is Cossack. The general said, and his smile showed red lips and pointed teeth. So am I. And so we have debated on this. We have. We've had. A, I know you can't imagine such a thing happening. <laughs> Is, is he talking about kind of the Cossacks? Or the human race? When he says, like all his race, he's a bit savage. Is he talking about the human race? Or is he talking about the fact that they're both Cossack? But either way, he's still referring to himself as a savage. Right. And that is important. And that's key for his character development in this moment with his red lips and his pointed teeth. But it's interesting. The implications of it being the human race will be interesting later. Right, and then another key aspect of his character development is the next thing they do is is sit down for a nice meal. Right, like with well-appointed crystal and find Sterling in the jungle. Well, he keeps telling him that they like to stay civilized here. Yeah, civilized. They have borscht, which is barely civilized. Depends on who you ask. Yeah, well. But as they're sitting there, Rainsford 
notices there was one small trait of the general's that made him uncomfortable. Whenever he looked up from his plate, he found the general studying him, appraising him narrowly. Perhaps you were surprised that I recognized your name. You see, Evrero books on hunting published in English, French, and Russian. But I have but one passion in my life, Mr. Rainsford, and it is the hunt. So he's showing off all of his trophies, and they look at this giant Cape Buffalo. And Rainsford says, I've always thought that the Cape Buffalo is the most dangerous of all big game. And so for a moment, the general did not reply, and then he smiles his curious red-lipped smile and says slowly, No, you are wrong, sir. The Cape Buffalo is not the most dangerous big game. And sipping his wine. Here, in my preserve on this island, I hunt the most dangerous game. So Rainsford surprisingly says, there's big game on the island? The biggest. Really? Oh, it isn't here naturally, of course. I have to stock the island. What have you imported, General? Like tigers? <sighs> no. Hunting tigers ceased to interest me some years ago. I exhausted their possibilities. You see, no thrill left in tigers. No real danger. I live for danger, Mr. Rainsford. And then they kiss. <laughs> We're not going into that. It is all a thinly veiled homophobic me- metaphor, but whatever. Okay, cool. Whatever you say, boss. And then they kiss. <laughs> but Rainsford does push Zaroff, like on what the game is. And then we get our evil genius soliloquy. Oh, well, he's basically a Batman villain. No, I think this is a Spider-Man villain. Why? Craven, the hunter. Oh, fair. <laughs> but he's monologuing. He monologues. Nah, it's a Batman villain thing. God makes some mean poets. He makes kings some beggars. He made me a hunter. My hand was made for the trigger, my father said. So after hunting animals all over the world, he found that hunting had just become to bore him. It had become too easy. No animal had a chance with me anymore. It is no boast. It is a mathematical certainty. The animal had nothing but its legs and its instinct. Instinct is no match for reason. So Zaroff goes on to say that he has become inspired, that he must invent a new animal to hunt. I wanted the ideal animal to hunt. So, I said, what are the attributes of an ideal quarry? And the answer was, of course, it must have courage, cunning, and, above all, it must be able to reason. But no animal can reason. My dear fellow, there is one that can. So Rainsford's a pretty smart guy. Is he? Because he's been asking a lot of questions. Yeah, because he's figuring it out. Well, he's a little slow to catch on. I don't know. Would you accept the idea that this guy is talking about killing hunting humans? He right has off pointy the bat? teeth and a henchman, yes. <laughs> you know, and so he's shocked and bewildered as he comes to the conclusion and and also to the conclusion that Zaroff is trying to get him to come be buddy buddy and hunt with him. I refuse to believe that so modern and civilized a young man as you seem to be harbors romantic ideas about the value of human life. Surely your experiences in the war did not make me condone cold-blooded murder. A life is for the strong, to be lived by the strong, and if needs be to be taken by the strong. The weak of the world were put here to give the strong pleasure. I am strong. 
Why should I not use my gift? If I wish to hunt, why should I not? I hunt the scum of the earth. Sailors from tramp ships. Lassers, blacks, Chinese, whites, mongrels. A thoroughbred horse or hound is worth more than a score of them. But they are men. Precisely. That is why I use them. It gives me pleasure. They can reason after a fashion. So they are dangerous. So he goes on to reveal that he has a training school in his basement. I don't know if it's in the basement. That's No, it's in. It's in the basement. It's in the basement? Yeah. Yeah, I was picturing it more like military barracks or something. I I assumed it was open air, that they like, got out to go in the yard and exercise. They're they did the free, prison workout. Not free range, I'm sorry. <sighs> but he keeps all these shipwrecked sailors, which he tricks the ships into thinking a channel is in one spot. And whenever they shipwreck and swim onto his island, he captures them. Yeah, he has like an electricity light special effect that he puts up that makes it appear that there's a channel there, but they crash on the rocks instead. But the entire time he's trying to convince Rainsford to go hunting with him. To go hunt other humans. Yes. I really believe that's what he's trying to do. I think it could be read both ways, but I agree with you for once. (laughs) I don't think it's some trick that, where he's going to double cross him. I think that he genuinely wants a buddy to go hunt with. Well, he respects him. Yes, he's read his book. That'll do a lot for creating respect. But since he is so resistant to, you know, going cold-blooded murdering. The hunting. Sporting. Sporting. It's fine. General Zarov lets him know that he will be the game. And he gives him a head start out to the jungle. Okay, wait. But we need to pause here and say we need to talk about how he makes men agree to be hunted. So it's important to say that if they do not agree to be hunted... Then Ivan gets his way with them. Which I think means torture, but again, thinly veiled homosexual metaphor, this entire story. Is everything? No, but the story really is, you have to admit. And then one point that I thought was really interesting is when he tells Rainsford that he's going to be hunted... He suggests that he wear moccasins so as not to leave deep tracks. Like, he is trying to make it as sporting as possible. And his game, the men, are given hunting knives. They are. And he uses a small caliber pistol that is only effective within short range. So as to make it fair in his mind. But it is a game. It's a game and it's not fair. But whatever. The general also has, you know, hunting dogs. But that will come into play later. He's still awash in the illusion of fairness. Right. So Rainsford gets this head start. He sends out this complicated trail and then goes and waits up in a tree. And he is shocked when Zarf is able to track him. At night. At night. At night. And he comes and stands right under the tree and blows a smoke ring from his pipe and kind of smiles. And walks away. Uh, Because he's a badass. <laughs> Ever so zealous a hunter as General Zaroff could not trace him there, he told himself. Only the devil himself could follow that complicated trail through the jungle after dark. But perhaps the general was a devil. But he realizes whenever Zaroff kind of finds him but doesn't. Has his villain moment. Yeah, he realizes that he's playing with him. The general was saving him for another day's sport. The Cossack was the cat. He was the mouse. Then it was that Rainford knew the full meaning of terror. 
And I think it's so interesting because it's in that moment of being spared that he has this weird revelation. Like, he's just messing with me. Like, that's when he's really afraid of him. And I think that's such a weird line in the sand. I would have been scared long before now. <laughs> but it's when he walks away that he fears him. Well, it's also whenever he decides he needs to kind of be more proactive. You know, and he starts to build traps. Right. And he builds a Malay man catcher and actually injures Zaroff. Only a little. A little. And then he builds a tiger pit and kills one of the hounds. So he's setting traps for the man in order to avoid being hunted. Right. Because he's very against hunting men, you know. Well, it's well, it's self-preservation. It's very different. Right, but he's still using his his hunting acumen in order to avoid capture. Because he's the most dangerous game. But Zaroff is like, actually injured and he's not at this point <laughs> I, don't know. I think it's really interesting i think it's really like he's using his hunting skills to fend him off but zaroff's just kind of like walking through the woods like if you think about what zaroff's actually doing yes he has the pistol he can shoot him probably a pretty good shot i'm gonna give him that you know it's a mathematical certainty that he's gonna take out any game ever safe assumption then he's a pretty good shot but Zahav never actually does anything to him at all. You know, he's the one laying traps. Yeah, no, you're right. But I mean, we know that he has killed many, many men before. I mean, it's a a strong illusion, surely. But what if he's just totally fucking with him? Have we we ever examined that possibility? So I'm going to say that I think it's really interesting. And this is probably really like I've read this story too many times. And now I'm thinking of the weird fan theories kind of deal. But like. What if Zaroff is just, like, walking through the woods? (laughs) Like, what if he's not actually gonna do anything? Because, like, the time he sees some small metallic thing, it turns out to be a lighter. What evidence does he have that he's actually going to kill him? What if he's just like, oh, this guy's a hunter. I'm going to fuck with him. I think that's ridiculous. (laughs) Probably so. Probably so. I'm just saying. Rainsford is the one setting traps. He is the one who will eventually have blood on his hands he's he's an interesting character right because eventually he does even set a trap with a knife and a young sapling and as he's running away he hears the trap go off and he looks to see if he's hit zaroff but he's not he's hit ivan so he's a killer now so after this he jumps into the sea and zaroff and the, and the hounds follow the trail that stops there he kind of sits there and like smokes a cigarette <laughs> And then retires to his chateau for a fine dinner and drinks. And then he retires to bed. A man who had been hiding in the curtains of the bed was standing there. Rainsford, how in God's name did you get here? Swam. I found it quicker than walking through the jungle. I congratulate you. You've won the game. Rainsford did not smile. I'm still a beast at bay. Get ready, General Zaroff. I see. Splendid. One of us is to furnish repasts for the hounds. The other will sleep in this very excellent bed. On guard, Rainsford. Ellipsis. He had never slept in a better bed, Rainsford decided. Excellent ending. Love it. So he kills Zaroff too. Yes, because he becomes the beast. He embraces his animal nature. So we both know that they actually cuddle, and it's fine. <laughs> and that's why the bed was the most comfortable. Because they were kind of lying. Okay, so I'm going to drop that because Jacob's not going down the thinly veiled homosexual metaphor with me. 
off topic. Fine. Okay. So what's interesting about this exchange? First of all, Zaroff, while he's alone having his fine meal that afternoon or that evening, does think like it's going to be really difficult to replace Ivan. So it shows some sort of empathy and concern for his man who was killed in this hunt. And then when Rainsford appears, he's like, oh, you win. Cool. You've won. Good job. Congratulations. But he's let the beast out. Whose fault is that? Well, <laughs> I would say he wouldn't be put in the position without Zaroff. Right, but he's all about, like, how could you possibly take a human life? And then he kills two men in a day. It's survival. It's that or it's kill or be killed. No, it's not. He comes to fuck with Zaroff. How can he trust that Zaroff will keep his promise to send him to the main land? Because he's a man of his word. He's a known quantity. He's a static character. I don't think I'd trust the guy. I would. I would. He's done everything he said he would do. You're going to be a head on the wall. I'm not. I'm not. I'm going to go back to New York. I'm going to drink gin fizz and do the Charleston motherfuckers. Like, there's no way that he's going to do anything to me at this point. He knows. He knows I could kill him. I've won. And that's why women are different. (laughs) Roar. (laughs) See, he loses. I would argue he loses because he gives in to this like base instinct where he goes back. He stages like, I'm going to fight you. The thing is, like if he was, if Zaroff wanted to mess with him at this point, like if he saw any indication that he was not being forthright with him, he could very easily undertake this fight then. Like if Zaroff was like, no, you're cool. And like the next morning he woke up and saw Zaroff loading a pistol or some shit. He could just do it then. But instead he's like, oh no, no, we're going to (laughs) fight. He gives in to that he loses his humanity. That that horrified, like, <gasps> could not turn me into a cold-blooded murderer. But I think that's kind of the point, is that he doesn't win the game. You know, it's a double play on it. You know, it's it's not right. that this, it, this obviously is a dangerous game to play. But also, he proves Zara's theory. That man is the most dangerous animal, and he's the most dangerous game. Which is why the original title, The Hounds of Zaroff, is not nearly as good as The Most Dangerous Game. It's terrible. Good job, editor. Editors are really important people, you know. But I do think it's interesting, because I have a fan theory, again. Oh, God. That Rainsford's sin, the reason he has to go through this ordeal, is his rejection of Zaroff. Is his rejection of that bond that he offers. Like, let's go hunt together. No, I agree with you, actually. I think that that's a really valid point because you could read it both ways. Like, is he trying to get him to come hunt with him? Or is it the whole time he's kind of setting up, like, and now I'm going to hunt you? No, I don't think that's it at all. I think he's definitely like, we're going to be bros. Let's be bros. We'll hunt together. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, he respects him. And. And I think he's also like, how can you not want to do this? How can you not be on the same page? We're both, we're two of the greatest hunters in the world. How can you not want to do this? And Rainsford's like, because it's wrong to kill people. Let me show you how I kill people. (laughs) But he says it's wrong to have cold-blooded murder. And this is not cold-blooded murder. He shows up at his house. Just to kill him, he could have gotten a boat. He couldn't have got. He could have found a lifeboat. He could have done all kinds of things. He could have accepted that you've won. He had a number of opportunities to not kill Zaroff. Because he could have gone and stole a boat. I think that's the most valid thing you said. He 
Because I wouldn't trust the guy, but could you go steal a boat? Yeah. Yeah. You didn't have to go back in that house. But I mean, this story has been you know, used so much in high school, middle school, college classes because it has those really strong themes that you can kind of pick out and also has a great question that we always ask. It's kind of what separates man from animal? Where's that line that we draw? And so the thing is, when the line gets blurred, a lot of people remember this story. So, for example, in one of the solved Zodiac ciphers, or the solved Zodiac cipher, there's a line that appears that man is the most dangerous animal of all to kill. So he's misremembering some English 101. And that's fine. But the Zodiac is for another day. I have thoughts about that. One day. One day. So, let's talk about another serial killer instead, okay? Good times. Let's talk about Robert Christian Hansen. And this is from Fair Game by Bernard de Clos. To big game hunter Robert Anderson, Alaska was a paradise. But for his victims, it was a terrifying wilderness where no one could hear their screams. Sounds like the tagline for a movie. Right? Well, there was a movie called Frozen Ground made with John Cusack and Nicolas Cage and Vanessa Hudgens. Why do we not watch this? Because... I didn't want to. <laughs> so Robert Hansen was born in Pocahontas, Iowa on February 15th of 1939, and he lived there for most of his youth. His father was a Danish immigrant who was a baker, a baker who was Danish. Let's enjoy that for a minute. Now, Robert had a bit of a stutter, and he had acne that would leave profuse scarring. He was very skinny and shy, and he was left-handed but forced to learn to use his right hand. And during switching his handedness, his stutter worsened. Right, the anxiety would induce that. But he first committed a crime, as far as we know, in 1960. And the crime was, oh, let's let's play Make the Serial Killer Triad. Did he kill an animal? Eh, try again. Did he burn something down? Yes, there you go. We don't know about bedwetting. One can assume. This was in 1960. He and a 16-year-old employee of his father's bakery burned down a school bus garage. Now, the teen eventually found a conscience and alerted the authorities to Hansen's involvement. And Hansen was sentenced to three years in prison. And he had married in 1961, but the divorce was final before a year passed. He was paroled after 20 months, despite being assessed as having a, quote, infantile personality, which made him obsess about getting even with people. Six years later, he married again, and the couple moved to Anchorage, Alaska, where they were active churchgoers, members in the Lutheran Church, and he opened his own bakery. He also took flying lessons. Please tell me this is my Sweeney Todd story. It's not, but it's almost. He gained a reputation for being a great hunter with both a rifle and a bow and arrow. And between 1969 and 1971, he had four animals entered into the Pope and Young record book, which sounds like a thing. I'm sure that's impressive. I am too. He was arrested twice in 1972 and charged with rape and attempted rape, but he served less than six months. Then he was arrested for shoplifting in 1976 when he stole a chainsaw. And he was subsequently convicted of larceny and given five years. But the verdict was overturned on appeal because the Alaska Supreme Court determined that the sentence was too harsh. He was released after serving only one year and told that he needed to stay on his lithium, which had been prescribed for his diagnosed bipolar disorder. 
But I'm going to guess he didn't. He did not. And there were no follow-ups. Now, Anchorage had an interesting environment in the 1970s. There was a bit of an oil boom, and that caused an influx of newcomers to the area. And so the Tenderloin District, which was sort of the red light district, was reportedly run by Seattle Mafia boss Frank Colacurio. There were several strip joints in the area with fantastic punny names such as Wild Cherry, Arctic Fox, Booby Trap, and the Great Alaskan Bush Company. We should go into business of naming strip clubs. Oh my God, please. Punny names. Yes. So there was this large population boom going on. And due to the oil market opening up, many young men had come to work. And they had a newfound disposable income. So these clubs were thriving. And there were many petty crimes, even beatings and armed robberies reported in the area. Between 1979 and 1983... Police responded at 207 incidents at the booby trap alone. I think she really liked me. <laughs> We're here to investigate the incident. I hear her top won't stay on. <laughs> the donut place next door is top notch, let me tell you. <laughs> so there was a bit of a problem with the bakery. There was a massive fraud used to build it. In January of 1981, Hansen used $13,000 from a false insurance claim stating that several of his big game trophies had been stolen. And when fraud was discovered, he claimed that the stolen wildlife trophies were mysteriously found in his backyard and he'd just forgotten to tell his insurance company. Convenient. Uh-huh. But so far we have like larceny, we have arson, we have rape and attempted rape, we have insurance fraud... So he's, he's already got a little bit of a record, but he's a hell of a nice guy and he makes a mean Danish. So nobody's bothering him too terribly much. Yeah, he kept the cops on the good side. Donuts, you know. But in 1980, bodies began surfacing around remote areas near Anchorage, Alaska, and a task force was organized. In 1982, Hansen purchased a small plane, a Piper Super Cub, though he never obtained a pilot's license because they would not issue one to someone who was taking lithium at the time. And he was supposedly on lithium for legal reasons. What if I'm supposed to be taking it, but I'm not? God, then get a license? I don't think we can issue a license if you're, you know, a murderer. <laughs> now, a real problem arose for Hansen on June 14th of 1983. One of his victims, Cindy Paulson, escaped while he was trying to force her to board his personal airplane. She ran from the scene with handcuffs still attached to her wrist. As she ran, she could hear her captor shouting, Stop, you bitch! Stop, or I'll kill you! Cindy never looked back. As she reached the road, she saw the trucker's headlights approaching her and waved it down with her manacled hands. The driver, 36-year-old Robert Yount, slammed on his brakes. Cindy clamored to safety. She was immediately taken to Anchorage Humana Hospital, and her exam revealed shackle marks on her neck and wrist and severe vaginal bruising. Holy shit. Yeah. She went to Anchorage Police Headquarters, where, during an interview, she offered detailed descriptions of his house, car, plane, and appearance. Police soon identified the 40-year-old baker, Robert Hansen, who would be interviewed by Officer William Dennis, a member of the Anchorage Police Department's sexual assault unit. However, Hansen was very cooperative and polite and did not show any visible signs of hesitation or guilt. And he put forward an alibi that held, using his friends, Henning and Summerall. And it came down to the word of a respected local businessman with an alibi against this sex worker with a police record. And Cindy also refused to take any lie detector test, and that convinced William Dennis that she was lying. So he closed the case. Officer Greg Baker 
this policeman who had taken Cindy's complaint was sure that Cindy was telling the truth. And there were exasperating circumstances that would arise eventually. But just to give you an idea of how all this is going, when Hansen was interviewed about Paulson's accusation, he dismissed them as, they, as if they were totally absurd, stating, you can't rape a prostitute. I was actually thinking, I bet you if you used to take a lie detector test, because they would ask her about sex work, and they could convict her on that, throw her in jail. She had been through some serious trauma. And I can imagine being in that place and being like, I've already told you everything. What more do you want from me? No, I mean, I'm saying I think that the legal system, as still happens today, could be the reason why she refused to do that. Right, bad experiences with law enforcement yeah. and things like that. Yeah, I'm sure that had was a contributing factor. But as I said, there were other things going on that began to make Hansen look a bit suspicious. In 1980, building workers discovered the body of a woman in a shallow grave on Eklunta Lake Road. Her body was badly decomposed and it was not possible to get any kind of ID on her, but the officers did attempt a forensic reconstruction. However, she remains unidentified to this day and she's known only as Eklunta Annie. However, I wanted to see what the forensic reconstruction looked like because I'm fascinated with that and... I did find where they've linked her to a girl on Web Sleuths. And I have to tell you, I really do think that they've got it. Interesting. I'm very curious to see what happens over the next couple of years with that. But in September of 1982, two hunters who happened to be off-duty police officers found a second shallow grave. And this was the body of a 23-year-old dancer named Sherry Morrow, who had been reported missing one year earlier. She'd been shot with a hunting rifle. Although she was fully clothed, there were no bullet holes found in her clothing, indicating that she was not dressed at the time that she was shot and that someone had taken the time to redress her. Ace bandages were found mingled with the remains, causing investigators to suspect that the victim had been blindfolded at the time of death. That's crazy. Yeah. And then on September 2nd of 1983, they found a third grave on the banks of the Nick River, and it was 17-year-old Paula Golding. And there was an obvious M.O. that was similar that matched the signature on Sherry Morrow's body. So one of the lead detectives, Glenn Floth, who was played by Nicolas Cage in the movie. So you mean Oscar winner Nicolas Cage? That's the one. Just making sure. Yes, it's true. That's not just a story. Was the lead detective on the case, and he was an Alaska state trooper. And he contacted the FBI, and they sent in Roy Hazelwood. Your best buddy. One of them. And he was brought in to profile the suspect. He said that the, the killer would likely be an experienced game hunter with low self-esteem and that he might have a history of being rejected by women and would be compelled to keep souvenirs such as victims' jewelry or even body parts. John Douglas and his unit eventually also came in to assist. So they got all the big guns. They did. And the case set precedent because psychological profiling was used as part of the process for issuing warrants eventually. And... It's important to note that as they were beginning to suspect that the person who was doing these things could be Robert Hansen, his neighbors had a very uniform, he's a really good guy, he would never... His Danishes are the best. Yeah, those donuts, man. Danish Danishes. I mean, they're authentic, but he was an outstanding family man, he was a churchgoer, etc., etc. No one could put two and two together. And his alibi was still holding for a while. Henning and Sumrall, the witnesses for his alibi, eventually caved when they were threatened with perjury charges and retracted their statements. And then a warrant was issued for his arrest. 
Sloth and the fellow officers secured a warrant for Hansen's home on October 27, 1983, and they discovered that there was jewelry belonging to the victims hidden in the paneling in his trophy room. He kept trophies in his trophy mm-hmm, room? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. He also had newspaper clippings about the murders and a firearm, one of a large collection, that matched the murder weapon, a two twenty three caliber Mini-14 rifle, was hidden under the floorboards. And he'd also kept a fish necklace that had been custom-made for victim Andrea Altieri. And they also found an aviation chart where he'd marked the location of several bodies, 20 asterisks corresponding with known locations of several bodies. 20 asterisks? Yes. And he kept a record? Oh, dude. Dude. One of the asterisks corresponded with location of the body of Joanne Messina, a 24-year-old sex worker that police later learned had been last seen with a small, stammering man with a pockmarked face. Now, while they're searching his home, he's in the middle of an interview with Floth and Sergeant Daryl Galen, and he originally claimed that he'd only wanted oral sex, and if the girls complied, he would then fly them home. But if they resisted, he would hunt them. I'm sorry, what? Did you say hunt? I did, I did, I did. I'm staying on message here. So this is from the Daily Sitka Sentinel on February 29th of 1984. And the headline is Game Hunter Stalked His Human Victims. A baker who stunned investigators by confessing that he killed at least 17 women and raped 30 others may have released some of his victims so that he could stalk them like big game trophies he pursued in the Alaska wilderness. They always seemed to get away, and they were found shot from some distance, from where he had intended to take them, said Sergeant Glenn Foth, a homicide investigator for the Alaska State Troopers. Ultimately, it enabled him to hunt a human. Oh my God, he's actually hunting humans. He was. This hunter, this man who kept trophies on the wall. And trophies in his trophy room. He now has trophies scattered throughout the south-central Alaska area said Prosecutor Frank Rothschild. Hansen on Saturday accompanied the troopers on a grim six-hour helicopter trip to pinpoint the locations of 13 of his victims. Floss said he was visibly disturbed during the flight. Hansen experimented with ways of controlling his victims to improve his attacks, Floss said, planning even the smallest details. First he used rope, then wire snares, and finally handcuffs. At first he buried his victims, but eventually that changed. As he refined his technique, he took his victims to areas not normally populated and shot them and left them on the ground, Floth said. When he would arrange to meet up with a victim, he would give a description of the car that would differ from the one he was driving. So when the victim would tell a friend that they were going meeting someone in a blue car, he would be driving something else. Hansen would generally wait for his victims to approach him and then offer them 200 to $300 for sex, Floss said. Once he got them in the vehicle, he'd grab them by their hair, put a gun in their faces, and secure their hands. During a trial, Prosecutor Frank Rothschild, who wore a red rosebud on his lapel in memory of the 17 victims, told the judge, There may very well be more victims. Before you sits a monster, an extreme aberration of human being, a man who has walked among us for 17 years, serving us donuts, Danish, and coffee with a pleasant smile. Oh my god, I thought you were joking about the donut thing. No, I'm not. Even his wife of 20 years had no inkling of his dark, evil side. He was the most prolific mass murderer in modern Alaskan history. Alaska's not got a nice history. <laughs> he stated that redressing the women was part of his need for control, and he thought of it as, quote, preparing a trophy. Hansen claimed that his first victim was Joanne Messina, who he murdered in July of 1980. He claimed that he was violently sick after killing her. 
A few weeks following Messina murder, he picked up an unidentified sex worker in Anchorage, and when she refused his demand for oral sex, he chased her down Eklunta Road and stabbed her to death. This victim was the unidentified woman known as Eklunta Annie. Hansen claimed that she, he got an enjoyable pleasure from his killing, and from then on had a powerful fantasy about hunting down and killing women like animals. It's so crazy that these serial killers always had this kind of almost natural reaction to their first killing. Like, they vomit or they get sick, and then they get over it real quick. I don't know if it's true or not, though. I mean, like, it may just be like, they, you know that you have to say that. I just, from hearing you talk, <laughs> and your just murderpedia-ness, yeah. it just seems like a common trend. It's just funny. just odd. So, his M.O., he would pay sex workers or exotic dancers for their services. And after they kind of agreed to do whatever he selected off the menu, he said that this was his common practice. I pull out the gun. I think a standard speech was like, look, you're a professional. You don't get excited. You know there is some risk in what you're doing. If you do exactly what I tell you, you're not going to get hurt. You're just going to count this off as a bad experience and be a little more careful next time who you're going to proposition or go out with, you know? I tried to act as tough as I could to get them as scared as possible. Give that right away, even before I started talking at all. Reach over, you know, and hold head back and put the gun to her face and get them to feel helpless, scared. Right there, I'm sure. Maybe it's not the same procedure for you. You always try to get control of the situation. So some things don't start going bad. Maybe I've seen some cop shows on TV. I don't know, okay? Yeah, sure, handsome. Uh-huh. He would then lure victims to his plane or force them there, either offering them a plane ride or forcing them on board. And then he would fly them out to a remote cabin in the Nick River Valley. And this was his favorite location because it had many sandbars on which he could land his plane. And while they were in the cabin, he would rape them. And then he'd strip them naked and force them out into the woods on foot. And he would stalk them, tracking them through the woods. Sometimes he would allow victims to think they'd had a, they had escaped but he would track them down and make them run again, eventually killing them with a hunting knife or a high-powered rifle. Hansen said it was like going after a trophy, a doll, sheep, or a grizzly bear. Holy shit, he's a real General Zaroff. He really is. Strangely, he claimed that he'd let several women go free when convinced his abductee would not report sexual assaults to the police. In 1980, he shot the dog of a woman that he'd murdered so that the dog wouldn't lead anyone to the shallow grave. The puppy killer. As if it couldn't get worse. If they came across with what I wanted, he explained, we'd come back to town and I'd tell them that they, if they made any trouble for me, I had connections and I would have them put in jail for being prostitutes. Resistance or demands for payment after sex resulted in assorted victims being murdered, sometimes with a ghoulish touch of having Hanson strip them and stalk them like animals. Now, eventually he would start bringing girls back to his home, either before or in lieu of getting on the plane. And that's what happened with Paulson. And so she actually saw the inside of his house with all the big game trophies. I'm sure that was a reassuring thing. And so she was actually severely raped before she ever escaped. And I have a little bit of her account from the same Alaska paper. She was 17 at the time, and her allegations after she escaped from him sparked renewed investigations into the disappearances of more than a dozen women from bars and clubs in Anchorage's so-called Tenderloin District along 4th Avenue. The court documents say that Hansen offered to pay $200 for sex with the 17-year-old sex worker who escaped from him last June 
After inviting the girl into his car, he allegedly drove her at gunpoint to his home where he tied her up and raped her several times, court papers say. The girl described in great detail the room where she was held, including the animal hides and trophy heads on the wall, and also told how Hansen chained her to a post while he slept for several hours. The girl also told police that when Hansen awoke, he handcuffed her and they drove to Merrill Field, an airport in the center of Anchorage and said that he was going to fly her to his cabin. She said she escaped while Hanson was loading the plane and ran to a motel nearby and called police and later identified Hanson as her assailant. Right, so she was badass. She really was. She escaped. She was able to identify her captor and get him arrested. And eventually she was the key piece of evidence, but at first they didn't quite believe her, which is always so shitty. He was charged with kidnapping, assault, and multiple weapons offenses, theft, and insurance fraud, and eventually four counts of murder were added. He indicated during questioning that he'd been killing women since 1973, and he showed investigators 17 burial sites. Twelve of these were previously unknown to police. Eleven sets of remains were recovered and returned to their families, but of the estimated 21 victims, 10 bodies were never recovered. I can't imagine just, like, sitting with him and touring the grave sites. Oh, apparently he was excited and exhilarated, reliving the murders over and over again in his head. And one of the officers said that he would drop to his knees and dig furiously with his bare hands, wild-eyed with a broad grin on his face, when he got to one of the burial sites. And it's important to note here that although Pope and Young initially stated that Hansen's crimes did not invalidate his bow hunting records. They have since removed his name from their record books. So that's terrible. But before we go, before we leave our dear friend, the Butcher Baker, as he came to be called. No. Yeah, it's a good nickname. <laughs> it sounds like a nursery rhyme. It know. Oh, yeah, the, the Butcher, the Baker, the, the candlestick maker. Exactly. Do you make candles? Ugh, I don't want to know. <laughs> so let's let's have one more look at this Alaska paper. From the time. This is the lead here. A sexually frustrated Anchorage baker, spurned by a youth because of a bad complexion and a speech defect, vented his rage by murdering and raping scores of women. And so we get a few quotes from him in this article. Before we go on, I just have to remark that a sexually frustrated Anchorage baker may be the best noun clause I've ever heard in my life. But he says... If you look real close at me, you'll see that I used to have tremendous amounts of pimples on my face. I guess it's because I grew up in a bakery and I'm addicted to sweets. My face was always one big yellow pimple, all through high school, even all through the service. It embarrassed me to no end to even be around people. My gosh, I looked like a freak, and I sounded like one. Consequently, I never had many girls that were interested in me. I can probably count on one hand the number of dates I had through high school, it's so hard to explain what it was like to always be wanting, you know, to see friends and so forth, go out on dates and ask a girl and she'd say, well, no, I'm sorry. I've got something else planned. Oh, poor guy. Right. So what he couldn't obtain in his physical merits, he tried to buy. With the earnings from his bakery, many thought he made the best donuts in Anchorage. Hanson had become a familiar face in the city's red light district. And then he speaks about how he would meet girls in the red light district and he says as long as she would go along with what i wanted out there okay we'd go we'd go home and that was it and if they didn't the interviewer asked they they stayed hansen replied well that's one way to put it hansen insisted he didn't hate all women 
As a matter of fact, I would venture to say I started to fall in love with every one of them, Hanson said. Every one of them became so precious to me because I wanted their friendship. I wanted them to like me so much. Oh, God. And then he talks about the first time he killed someone. He says, I can remember I just sat there and cried. I knew what I did was, you know, totally, totally wrong. But he went on killing. Hanson said he was drawn to victims like a moth is drawn to fire. It was just seeing everybody else get theirs. It's my turn to have fun now, he said. He said that he would bought the services of prostitutes on a regular basis because he would never want his wife or any woman he cherished to engage in oral sex. The reason Hansen gave for pleading guilty is that he wanted to spare his wife and two children the embarrassment of protracted legal proceedings. Such a good guy. God, I cannot believe this. I cannot believe this actually happened. He would fly them up in a little plane to his cabin, give them a head start, and then stalk them. It's literally the most dangerous game. Like, it is, the, it is that story. I mean, even show them the trophy room. And like... I know. I don't think he was quite as refined. He was like, I got good donuts. You know? <laughs> but. You never know. He might have had a great accent. Who knows? He died when he was around 75 years old, still in jail. But there was an interesting passage from Gareth Patterson, who is a conservationist. And it's in an article called The Killing Fields. And he compares the similarities between trophy hunters and serial killers. He says, Certainly one could state that like a serial killer, the trophy hunter plans his killing with considerable care and deliberation. Like the serial killer, he decides well in advance. The type of victim, that is, which species he intends to target. Also, like a serial killer, the trophy hunter plans with great care where and how the killing will take place, in what area, with what weapon. What the serial killer and the trophy hunter also share is a compulsion to collect trophies or souvenirs of their killings. The serial killer retains certain body parts and or other trophies, for much the same reason as the big game hunter mounts the head and antlers taken from his prey as trophies of the chase. It's shocking how much that just lines up with the most dangerous game. It's like he's trying. But incidents like this and serial killers and war and blood sport and the amount of violence in the world, they are all reasons that people cite that we must have this buried deep in our genetic code. We must have been a vicious predator always. Right. I Okay, can I say it now? What? <laughs> I call bullshit. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's still questions debated, but... Oh, wait, scholars debate? They do, <sighs> as they should. But as more evidence is coming out, and as people are starting to look at things from a different angle, we do start to see a new approach to our origins so what you're telling me is that after a generation of anthropologists watched that documentary 2001 a space odyssey they concluded that the formation of tools and man becoming man immediately led to war and or murder it was all caused by the aliens and now we have people who have seen a different movie gorillas in the mist or some shit and they're like no we're hippies. We all just really want to get along and chew leaves together. What's up, you guys? Well, so, I mean, they start to look at the real evidence. The real evidence is there and say, is the idea of man the hunter the predominant force of evolution and thus why we are who we are today? And that's the question we are always asking. And so 
we can look at some of the stuff we talked about earlier and see how taking a look at it again has changed how we interpret those ideas. And so Douglas Fry, who was a researcher there at the Human Potential for Peace, went and looked at Shagnon's study on the Yanomami and noticed that he was very biased in his read, which should not be shocking. Now, Shagnon's assertion was that the men who were most efficient warriors had more children, but he failed to control for age differences. I'm sure he also failed to control for those that were not great warriors that went out to war and died tragic deaths. Right. So it's really just the people that lived the longest that had the most kids. Crazy. Which is expected. But then there's the big question of why did we stand up? Meerkats. Why are we? Exactly. That is the most likely reasons. Why are we bipedal? Why are we standing up? Why is that an important trait? And now scientists suggest that that's because we were standing to look for predators. The meerkat argument. I'm an accidental genius. TM. But this and so much else we'll talk about has led to ideas of moving from human as hunter to human as prey. So you're telling me that we were not the most dangerous game? Well, maybe we were. Maybe we were the most dangerous game. It had to become very dangerous for hunters to pursue us. Well, we had to start making some changes from you know just any old animal to being able to outwit, outsmart, outplay the predators. So we needed things like a Burmese tiger trap. Well, and so what we can do is we can look at some of the famous fossils that we've talked about before on our Bigfoot episode that have really helped shape what we know about the origins of man. So we're delving into the wide and wonderful world of physical anthropology. Yeah. So let's go to the Peking Man. Okay. Tell me a little bit about the Peking Man. Refresh my memory. Well, so he is a Homo erectus, and he was found in China Mm -hmm. back in the day. And when he was found, they found him in a cave system. Now, many excavators had initially thought that the caves were the home of this Homo erectus, and they deducted that the stone tools and the animal bones were the remains of meals and evidence of hunting expertise. Man, the hunter's born in a cave in China. But then the hunter hypothesis soon gave way to a more sensational view that maybe they were cannibals badass because they found signs of trauma to the skulls with blunt and sharp objects such as clubs and sharp tools and the damage done to the remains appeared to be systematic suggesting decapitation and cuts along bones suggested efforts to extract marrow so humans are the best worst or or something else ate it the animals they found in there were these large hyenas so scavengers well they'd hunt you know hyenas hunt sometimes too and excavators found that many of the bones resembled modern bones broken up by hyenas and even noting that marks on the brow ridge suggested that the giant hyenas chew the faces off their prey since it's a vulnerable spot ew i don't want to be a predator <laughs> Now, Sessman wrote a book really looking into this, and he says that our intelligence, cooperation, and many other features we have as modern humans developed from our attempt to outsmart the predator. There are signs 
of primates being hunted by large animals and raptors, such as in Kenya. Wait, like they can open doors, raptors? Like birds, raptors. Uh, okay. Now, one researcher was looking into primates in the Rusinga Islands in Kenya, and these are considered ancestors with modern humans and chimpanzees. And they found skeletons 16 and 20 million years old with multiple defleshed, chomped, and gnawed bones. I've observed multiple tooth pits and probable beak marks on these fossil primates, which are direct evidence for creodonts, which are these like ancient carnivorous mammals, and raptors consuming these primates. Now, interestingly, when a raptor approaches a group of monkeys, these monkeys will start to make alarm calls to warn their group and attempt to retreat to lower branches. Right, like the lying monkey. Yeah. The lying monkey that does the eagle call and tricks everyone into going in the trees and then goes and eats the banana. Yeah. Because they're smart. They're smart. Now, the tongue child is an important fossil that we discussed also. And there's this three-year-old child found in South Africa, which was an Australopithecus africanus species which lived about three to two million years ago and it was noted that there were skull holes neatly punched into each eye socket and these are oh so murder most talons oh murder most different fowl of a large bird and the skull was found among other bones under which has been interpreted as a nest and more recently, great piles of roughly 5 million-year-old fossil monkey skulls, many of them with talon holes, were discovered in Angola under what appears to have been four separate eagle nests. So we had hyenas after us, we had raptors after us, everything. They can open doors. Different raptor. Fine. Now, so these old Australopithecus had small teeth. They didn't really have tools. They were short. They are about three feet tall. This is kind of the group that Lucy fits into. Mm -hmm. They lacked the size and weapons, so they had to use their brains and their agility and their social skills to be able to escape from predators. It's been shown that from what they can see, that Australopithecus suffered the same predation rate as many other primate species, about 6%. About 2 million years ago, there was the shift. Somehow, predation rates on other species suddenly went up, rates on human ancestors declined and the reason for that is still a big old question mark but some archaeologists and paleontologists don't think we had a modern systematic method of hunting until as recently as sixty thousand years ago so we were totally on defense not offense right and you know a lot of times people think you know ask the meat question and a lot of anthropologists propose that our ancestors were scavengers yeah I can see that. That makes sense. Now, while Piltdown Man... Wait a minute. That sneaky bastard has no place on this countdown. Well, he was proving to us how far superior we are <laughs> than all of these other primates. Dart and his Australopithecines was being ignored. Now, as we discussed, we now know that's the link between Ape and Man. And originally, he believed that they were scavenging in this harsh savanna environment. But... That was not attracting the editors. Right? Everyone was ignoring him. Poor guy. So in the 1950s, Dart began to change his views and go along with others in the man as hunter category. He felt the holes and dents in game animals found were caused by ape man hunting and butchering the animals. He said, Ooh. The ancestors of Australopithecus 
left their fellows in the trees of Central Africa through a spirit of adventure and the more attractive fleshy food that lay in the vast savanna of the southern plains. Oh, okay. He called them confirmed killers, carnivorous creatures that seized living quarries by violence, battered them to death, tore apart their broken bones, and dismembered them limb from limb, greedily devouring livid, writhing flesh. This loathsome cruelty of mankind to man is explicable only in terms of man's carnivorous and cannibalistic origins. This mark of Cain separated man dialectically from the anthropoid relatives and allies him with the deadliest of carnivores. Which is why we're omnivores. Good point. But... We aren't carnivores. But, you know, that's fun. If you're writing science fiction, it's a really creepy description. Um, none of that makes any sense to me. Right, because as one anthropologist described, a bleak, pessimistic view of human beings and their ancestors as intrinsically bloodthirsty and aggressive. But I do have to say, we've just been through World War II at this point. No, you're right. And that did really play into this. I'm sure it colored a lot of people's perspectives. And then there's also that just Judeo-Christian view of things. I mean, he literally says the mark of Cain is what's causing this. Well, he's saying that it's much older, but yeah, sure. So the ability to murder each other is what makes us human. It's a lovely thought. You know, I prefer the, like, the laughing thing. Like a baby gets a soul when it laughs. I like that better. It's nicer. I'm a Thinian. <laughs> but this also ties to 19th century ideas of cultural survivals. Which are those behaviors that are no longer useful in society, but they remain present. Like an appendix? Kind of. Of the spirit. (laughs) Yes. So Washburn and Avis wrote, in 1958, Man takes pleasure in hunting other animals. Unless careful training has hidden the natural drives. Men enjoy the chase and the kill. In most cultures, torture and suffering are made public spectacles for the enjoyment of all. Carnivorous curiosity and aggression have been added to the inquisitive and dominant striving of the ape. The carnivorous psychology may have had its beginnings in the depredations of the Australopithecines. And also, you know, you can tie this in with that social Darwinism that we've Mm. talked about in the past, that the, the most civilized of people will survive. Right, but we're all in danger of at any moment revealing our true nature. Yes. The monster within. We can revert. Or, you know, the wiring can just be wrong and we can be like 200 years early. Whatever. None of this makes sense. Well, no, because if you look at it from that human as prey standpoint, it really just fits in. I mean, okay, so let me make a pitch for this. It makes sense that we live in groups because we would be able to warn each other about threats. And we would be able to share resources and share responsibilities and form networks of specialized ability, like a, somebody that knows how to do one thing can trade with somebody that knows how to do another thing. And we can take turns and we don't have to do all the work. I mean, group group living makes sense just from a practical standpoint, with, without threats, with, without hunting. But with threats... You know, you only need one fire for the whole village to keep burning at night. You only tend that one fire. You don't each have to tend one tiny little campfire. But you can even pull it back further. Think of it from, like, almost an origins of our morality. There's a reason that we have morality. And there are two big aspects of it. Of why we would put up with all these other people. One, the obvious. We need other people to pass on our genes. 
Oh, yeah, sex. <laughs> Very important. But also, we need other people to help us. We need aid. We survive better in groups. Right, but you don't want to be around people who are going to tear you limb from limb and eat your livid writhing flesh because we're carnivorous cannibal ancestor, whatever. Right, we wouldn't live in groups if that was the norm. Right, we need to be able to trust that friend A is not going to eat our livers as we sleep. Right, and so you have what's called reciprocal altruism, and that's that we're altruistic because we get something out of it. So selfish but nice. Right, you were nice because you want other people to be nice. Well, now my secret's out. I think it's most people's secret. And so there's another theory that's been put forward that I thought you would like called Woman the Gatherer. As opposed to Man the Hunter. Yes. Citing that the woman's role has really been downplayed and that having these social groups and having older women might have proved very crucial in being able to gather food, to feed and care for children, and thus allow the social group to continue to move forward, to be successful, and to have more children, and thus to propagate our genes. So like the multi-generational living arrangements allow people more freedom to actually provide for the community. Right. And it would also favor ideas of why we have a long lifespan, why we have a larger body size and delayed maturity, and why a lot of these major changes could be tied to foraging more than hunting. Well, yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense because... Foraging, to me, is more of a natural bridge to agriculture, which is one of the things that I believe really develops settlements and really creates like long-standing community. No, of course. And without sustainable food, we would be on the run constantly. Like The idea that there's some great hunting community that's moving around every few days just does not make sense. Right, so we can cooperate for more than just hunting. Now, a researcher at Neurodame, Augustine Funtes, says, Humanity evolved much more by helping each other rather than by fighting with each other. We shaped the environment and changed how other organisms interacted with it. And neuroscientists have even shown that there's a connection between the act of cooperating and the brain's reward centers. So it is truly wired into us that cooperating with others gives us that reward system and encourages it well it's interesting because like i'm even thinking about domesticating animals and i'm thinking about like when we need an animal to help us or assist us in any way we make it docile and cooperative like that's what we seek out that's what the selective breeding is done for you know we don't want a super aggressive animal unless we're you know using it to bullfight or whatever We want something that is going to be cooperative. And when we're in charge of that, that's what we seek in other animals. And it's not hard to imagine, like, the process of community building is sort of a domestication of neighbors. No, I think that's very valid. And, you know, you look at just social groups now and primates. Oh, yeah. That's like an obvious kill to the man as hunter theory for me. All diurnal primates live in permanent social groups. And most ecologists agree that predation pressure is one of the major adaptive reasons for this group living. And also, you know, you have these anthropologists kind of say chimps are murderers, chimps are very aggressive, the demon chimp. Yeah, it's like adolescent males in like highly vulnerable groups that act that way. 
Yeah, and that's what they've really shown by going and looking back at the data that, yeah, you do have situations like this, but most of the time it's either when resources are very scarce, which is often because of us, <laughs> because of human involvement. Sorry, chumps. Or whenever humans create like feeding stations and you have these separate different groups coming and competing for the food and that's when they can get to those aggressive stances so a lot of times it's through survival pressure that we enforce on the chumps and so you really can't say that it is their natural being to do that we're introducing new stressors exactly so i think one thing we can look at that really ties in with that origins is more prey is our kind of fear anxiety and fight or flight response that we have right they're co-equal branches yeah and and before you even get into that you could look at even our development of color vision which some scientists feel that we have this trichromatic vision related to being able to spot predators such as snakes this is not really a depth perception thing. That is a, a color differentiation because they're flat and low to the ground. Right. But we have this behavioral and cognitive response that constitutes our emotions as this pre-programmed pattern of response that increases our ability to cope with threats or to seize opportunities. But our emotional responses must fit these changing adaptive challenges. So we have our different emotions to deal with particular kinds of situations. But these complex traits can only be shaped by natural selection if they serve to function to increase our fitness. So it's like we have inborn emotional responses. So they're like crayons. Okay. Like each one is a different color. You could think of it that way. And they all come in a box. What color is your parachute? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think I have a parachute. I'm very nervous That's about not good. it. You should be. But the only reason we have these emotions is because they're useful. Right. So we're not going to be using red violet or jungle green. Stop putting that shit in my box. Like we're weeding out and we're getting down to that eight pack that actually works for most situations or whatever. You know, and as time goes on, we get more and more complex. Is that kind of the theory? It's like we have more nuance and more... You know, you can start with eight crayons and they work for most situations. As those become standard, you start to fill in the gaps between colors with these infinite little shades and responses and each one's useful in its own way. But you kind of... Right, but a lot of times those shades, you're using those like eight crayons. You have those basic kind of emotions. You're combining them to get different responses. Okay. So... I just want color. So I think the best example to look at is like anxiety, stress, fear. All right, so those are my red and black crayons. Or do I have to pick one? No, because you can have this general anxiety, but you can have different subtypes of anxiety. So if red is my anxiety color, my red violet and my pink and my magenta and all of those things would be my subheadings. Right, but you have those different things for specific uses. Right. And they have to give us a selective advantage... In order to be useful, and in order to stay around. Right, so pink has proved useful for coloring and flowers in the past as opposed to red, so I'm going to keep that one because I actually need that color. I totally need that color. What if you don't use it? It goes away. If it does not help your survival, it does not push forward through evolution. 
So you can look at anxiety and separate into those different patterns. So this is useful anxiety. Right. So you can have your, your flight, your escape or avoidance. And now this would, of course, distance you from some kind of animal. Or if you're stuck between a rock and a jaguar, you have to do something. Pretend to be a rock. No, you can have that, that fight, that aggressive defense, this anger, clawing, biting. Or you can have, you can have those freezing immobility. And that can benefit by aiding location and assessment of danger or concealment or inhibiting a predator's attack reflex. And the next look is submission or appeasement. And this is useful whenever you're in a group and you need to pick your battles. <laughs> and sometimes you have to let the hierarchy and the person that's higher than you kind of take the lead. So deference, submission. So individuals who recognized these anxiety-inducing events and responded would live longer, be more fit, have more kids, and that would become part of humanity. So a little bit of anxiety gives us these protective gains. Now, we sometimes may think, why do we, why does this get triggered so quickly? And you just have to look and say, well, is it better to be frightened and hide or to have less of a fear response and be killed by a jaguar? Hide. I'm going with hide. Right. And so that's why we're so quick for that to kick in. And so one would think if we had less to be afraid of, we would not have a quick fear response. Right, but we had lots to be afraid of back in the day. Not that we don't know. So one paper researcher was talking about phobias, and he noted that many phobias are related to kind of ancient threats. You know, we're scared of snakes and spiders and heights and storms and thunder and lightning and darkness and blood and strangers and social scrutiny, separation from the group, leaving home. These phobias are exaggerations of our natural fears. Unlike the prepared fears and phobias that he just discussed, we don't fear things that are actually very dangerous. You know, we're not afraid of cars, hmm. or cigarettes, alcohol, even though it kills a lot more people than snakes and spiders and sharks. And if you, in aversion therapists, have even found it very hard to like induce fear of alcohol and alcoholics because we're just kind of not wired to for it. And he also wonders if submission is more marked in social phobias more than like animal phobias if freezing is more pronounced in fear of heights than of animals our flight is more pronounced in fear of animals than in fear of heights oh interesting like if our responses are more specifically tailored for the kind of stimuli we're encountering and the kind of threat so the question is why does this idea of man as hunter and the tropes of hunting humans still exist if there's so much evidence against it. And people are going to constantly cite wars, bloodshed, violence as examples. But there's probably another reason for why those things occur. And it's probably societal. The introduction of new stressors like a feeding station and a group of chimpanzees. where There are easily accessible resources that are available. Or in humans where resources might be limited, or you can be in a very stressed state, which we've talked about, can completely rewire your brain and can lead to more things like this. And there was even one paper published in Futures um, called Hunting Humans, 
a future for tourism in 2200. And this was covered by all of the major papers and news outlets. And his professor kind of just writing about tourism and how he thinks that all of the changes in the planet you know, due to global warming and changes in the environment and scarcity of resources and the rise of more elitist groups that this could eventually lead to the actual condoned hunting of humans as a tourist sport. I read it as almost like a modest, modest proposal, proposal <laughs> kind of thing. That he's saying like, hey guys, we gotta do something. Get your shit together, people. Or it's gonna get this bad. It's satire. I feel like it is. No one else thought so. Really? I mean, none of like the Guardian had it. <laughs> so I want to go back to Zaroff for a second. And I want to talk about why... It is that I find him so much more fascinating than Rainsford. And I want to talk about what it is about this calculating killer character that makes him so memorable. Because Zaroff is a very memorable character. And in light of some of the things we've talked about, I think we have to kind of take a look at ourselves alongside Zaroff. So this is a lot of this is taken from the paper Killer Personalities, Serial Killers of Celebrities in Contemporary American Culture by Yara Kosgergi. And I think that we should start by talking about, now that we're kind of thinking of people as prey more than people as hunters, we should spend a little time looking at, this, at a concept called wound culture. The convening of public around violent scenes has come to make up what Mart Seltzer calls wound culture. He defines it as the public fascination with torn open bodies and torn open persons, a collective gathering around shock, trauma, and the wound. Given the sheer volume of crime stories in the media, it is safe to say that the public is fascinated. American culture is drawn to trauma. It is a culture of atrocity exhibition in which people wear their damage like badges of identity or fashion accessories. In the 20th century, the superstar of our wound culture has emerged as a serial killer. I think you can definitely see that with the rise of true crime. Absolutely. I mean, true crime has never gone away. It's always been an interest to people, but last year it has skyrocketed. It's just that men are listening to, but whatever. It's been a very female-dominated domain, if you I mean, will. I would say it's become even more accepted among females. Like... Even more than it was. Yeah. I mean, you have to look back at, like, Dateline and 48 Hours and... Yeah, so I mean, it's existed. Yeah. But anyway, that's another entirely different discussion. But the serial killer has become classified as a species of person, not simply one who kills, but a killer. So the media has now taken this sort of neutral tone toward any kind of notarized person, any kind of... Celebrity. And celebrity is now available and accessible for so many more people than it ever has been before in history. Right, like two people with a mic. Oh my god, you're right. So it's not necessarily for skill that someone can become famous, but it's just their visibility. Just being seen. It's no longer necessary to distinguish between good and bad forms of fame. And bad behavior can be seen as an efficient way to become notorious or infamous which is now basically the same thing as famous. And it's a very efficient use of the machinery that creates celebrities. And serial killers were first defined as those who kill multiple people and kill for reasons other than greed, a fight, jealousy, or family disputes. Of course, now the definition has become more nuanced, but I want to look at why this definition 
may have contributed to kind of cult and ultimate panic in the 1980s about serial killers. Because this category, the subset of killers, has always existed. People whose crimes just didn't make sense. It was not a new phenomenon. No, but the media coverage of it was. Mm Mm-hmm. Every day, there's a new serial killer on the 5 o'clock news. And the FBI, in defining this, kind of created an atmosphere in which this was a legitimate thing to cover. And they also created a need for study and special investigation, especially federal investigation that could cross state lines. And really, they created a need for people to pay special attention and warn themselves and guard themselves against this new predator. Your neighbor may not just be that nice guy right. that makes really good donuts and no, danishes. He might not be. The Danish Danish maker. The Danish donut man, the butcher baker, the Danish Danish maker. So it may be that the attention paid to this group of killers creates a group of individuals aspiring to be part of it, looking for social acceptance within that codified group. And the media coverage, as well as the sort of policing discourse that arose around serial killers kind of granted it this legitimacy and maybe even like this mystique and cachet that made it seem desirable in a weird way. And by popularizing the image of the serial killer as a monstrous, sexually sadistic, and highly mobile fiend, the FBI contributed to and demonstrated the necessity and validity of the policing that they would do as a result of this new need that had arisen. So they call these serial killers. We offered the problem and the solution in the same breath. Handy. Funding. What? Nothing. So there's a certain marketability around the idea of serial killers. And interestingly, Carl Panzum, who was a serial killer, noted this. He had been jailed after he confessed to murdering 21 people, and he wrote a letter to his prison warden a few days before his execution. And the letter suggests a highly developed awareness for the market of murder. It said, A bunch of these kind of newspaper clippings in my picture would be good to fill in the last part of a book. They'd be very good because they would be both authentic and interesting. After all my part of the book, to finish it off with proper style, you as the author could write my wind-up or epitaph, with perhaps a picture of me after death, or the grave, or the electric chair. You could write the preface, use my writing for the book, and your own explanation as the conclusion. This ought to make a hell of a good book, and I've never seen or heard of one like it. It ought to have a big sale, with all the interest that would be aroused by all the people publishing so much about me. So that was in 1929. Ahead of his time. Ahead of, in so many ways. So many ways. He was a hipster. So many terrible ways. He was a hipster serial killer I was with killing, lots of tattoos and a badass mustache. I was killing people before Ted Bundy was out of diapers. Or born. But whatever. So BTK infamously wrote to newspapers, How many times do I have to kill before I get a name in the paper or some national attention? Well, then you have the Zodiac Killer. Yes. Sending messages, cryptic messages. Or do you, but that's a different episode. So BTK involved media and police correspondence about his crimes so much that it seemed that it was almost part of the motivation. So... He's a real-life example, but fictional serial killers do little better than their real-life counterparts because they're often glamorous anti-heroes 
who accidentally steal the show. And when you start having these really fantastical deviations from the norms, the lines between fact and fiction can tend to get very blurry. So let's talk about Zaroff 2.0 a bit, and I believe that is Hannibal Lecter. The refined gentleman killer. Right, who's actually not so bad of a guy because he's helping out the investigator. He's not the bad one. She's hunting. That's Buffalo Bill. And we get the moral spectrum instead of the black and white. He introduces that good old-fashioned moral gray. We love some gray. We do. Fifty shades of it. So characters such as Lecter allow for the free expression of feelings and fascination and admiration concerning serial killers that are more carefully concealed in other instances. Elliot Layton argues no one ever became famous by beating his wife to death in an alley, but virtually all of our multiple murderers achieve true and lasting fame. During their trials, they will almost certainly be surrounded by admiring women who impress their affections upon their killer, radiating toward him little but admiration and love. And then to bring it back even more into the real world, author goes on to state, even during the crimes themselves, some serial killers have been influenced by the public's fascinated interest in them. David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, (laughs) stated that, I finally had convinced myself that it was good to do it, necessary to do it, and that the public wanted me to do it. The latter part, I believe until this day, I believe that many of them were rooting for me. Christopher Sherritt says, Perhaps the fetish status of the criminal psychopath is about recognizing the serial mass murderer is not a social rebel or folk hero, but is a genuine representative of American life, through which we can manage our appalled and appalling fascination with the serial killer, contemporary American culture's ultimate deviant. And as we've shown time and again, we love to talk about the deviants. Maybe our fascination isn't due to identifying with these predators, but due to the fact that we fear becoming their victims. Well, and again, we like to face our fears. There's an interesting passage about the way that the media deals with these killers and the way that we have kind of sought out these stories. It's important to understand why America holds fascination with knowing intimate, often graphic details about serial killers and their acts of violence. Mark Seltzer's ideas about wound culture certainly apply. The crowd gathered around the fallen body, the wrecked machine, and the wound has become a commonplace in our culture, a version of the collective experience that centers on the pathological public sphere. But on another level, we are able to observe these accounts from a distance, which makes it safe. From that distance, we are not only able to confront our fears, but also reduce their power over us. So in the case of Son of Sam or David Berkowitz, his former court-appointed psychiatrist wrote his biography, and this eventually led to Son of Sam laws, which ban criminals sold the rights from profiting on their work that's another episode but it was an interesting biography because it made these very neat tidy links between his life circumstances the pathologies they created and his outrageous socially deviant behavior of murdering people so his biographer blamed his adopted mother who he believed david had sexual feelings for it's very freudian oh yes it is and wait we're gonna get more the author took it one step further and stipulated that berkowitz ate excessively in fear of being consumed himself which led to thoughts of killing and for self-preservation all of these feelings were instrumental in establishing his emotional readiness for the brutal killing of innocent women eat or be eaten kill or be killed i don't know about that either Summer of Sam, as as newspapers like to call the summer of 1977, galvanized the citizens of New York and created a charged atmosphere around the case following Berkowitz's arrest. Berkowitz became an instant celebrity. 
He appeared on television, he held several interviews with news journalists, and he created a public profile. Abersham's account of Berkowitz was received well because he offered insight into this deranged individual, who he was, where he came from, and most importantly, what made him commit murder. Abersham used his rapport and authority as a psychoanalyst to assert his theories of Berkowitz's psychological state in the public realm. And so he sort of diffused that bomb, if that makes sense. He explained it. Mm-hmm. And we can explain something we're afraid of. We're it's less afraid scary. of. Yeah. There's nothing under your bed. That's just a coat in the closet. Or the crimson clown. clown is going to get you. So fiction has gone so far as to reverse the role of cops and robbers, or maybe more accurately, the superior detective and the hapless crook in the genre of the psychological thriller. A close relative of the crime film, the psychological thriller is seen as an alternative for traditional cops and robbers story. But in thrillers, the characters are less emblematic than in crime films, and the viewpoint concerning criminals tends to be esoteric. Society, since it is not directly involved, is absolved from responsibility of any wrongdoing. This genre of film is not to be meant to be a commentary on society. The thriller deals with violence in the private sphere. In crime films, the detective's role cannot be usurped. In thrillers, the lawman's role can be usurped at any given moment. In serial killer films, the serial killer takes on the role of usurper. Well, you can see the rise of the thriller in the 80s and 90s. Absolutely. Directly related to the rise of the serial killer in the 70s and 80s and the fascination that came with it. Right. The BAU was not even around until then. (laughs) So back to Zarov 2.0. One reviewer describes Lecter as the most seductive psychopath, a fellow who listens to Goldberg variations and can sketch the Duma from memory. It's not his elegant taste that attracts Starling, and certainly not his arrogant manner or his good looks. His smile is frosty and his eyes never change expression. It is his mind that draws her to him. Hannibal is one movie killer who is as demonstrably as brilliant and wicked as he is reported to be. In their first encounter, Lecter sizes Starling up and demoralizes her by criticizing her purse, her cheap shoes, and a West Virginia accent. You look like a rube, a well-scrubbed, hustling rube with little taste, and eventually scares her off. Lecter only gives in exchange for getting. Lecter and Starling become the analyst and the analyzed, the teacher and the pupil, the father and the daughter, the lover and the beloved, and while always remaining a cat and a mouse. In a conventional detective story, murder is regarded as normal. They belong in a particular social type with predictable motives such as love, revenge, and money, and so on. By contrast, the detective is extraordinary, with special qualities that permit permit a solution where a less brilliant man would have failed. Sherlock Holmes comes to mind. But in the case of the serial killer, and of this serial killer in particular, the pattern is inverted. Dr. Lecter is a brilliant psychiatrist who is serving consecutive life sentences for his cannibalistic serial killing activities. But he's called in to help the FBI ensnare another homicidal psychopath. It is this power relationship that establishes Lecter as the unexpected protagonist of the film. His bad acts are somewhat mollified by his his assistance, however two-handed it is. So I wanted to talk about that in relationship to Zaroff. Right, he's the sophisticated man. He's the guy who has it all figured out. He's figured it out. I mean, we're all just animals. We're just the ones with that can rationalize things and with reason. But I think it is really interesting that his thesis proves to be correct by the end. But I do think that the thesis really, you know, coming from the 1920s, 
is related to those ideas of man the hunter and the ideas that we all just have this hidden anger and aggression. Right. It, it makes me think of the killing joke. And I, maybe that's what I'm reading there more than anything. It's like if the Joker succeeded in the killing joke. Because he's like, any man can be torn apart by one bad day, right? That's the driving thrust of the killing joke, which is a graphic novel by Alan Moore. Horrible representation of sexual violence, but absolutely essential Batman canon reading. Just to speak from an informed place, if one wants to speak from an informed place about Batman, which all two of you that do, go read it. Pause, go read it. You too. Just you too. All of you. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I see some of Zaroff in that depiction of the Joker, and I see some of him in Hannibal Lecter. This idea that the trappings of civility don't really repress these dark urges. But we have to look at it in this greater context of society needing to explain away the bad things that people do. So in his critique of violence in 1986, Walter Benjamin argues that violent destructiveness of criminals is not exclusively inherent in the acts that they commit, but in what their deeds imply about an attack on the principle of law itself. Benjamin supports this claim by emphasizing how often we figure of the great criminal, however repellent his ends may have been, has aroused the secret admiration of the public. This cannot result from his deed, but only from the violence to which it bears witness. The serial killer brought both outrages and thrills us by his seeming ability to operate outside the law to make his own law in a gesture of whose his ambivalent destructiveness and creativity mirror our own ambivalent response to the killer, composed of both fear and attraction. But the attraction is the fear. Is it? Or is it like, hey, that guy's going to keep me safe from raptors? No, I, I think it's the fear. I think it's it's confronting the fear. It's confronting the dark side of humanity. So we draw closer to it in order to understand it better. And if we can understand it, we control it and we're less afraid of it. But the ideas of our warlike species, our violent human nature, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. And it's a theory looking for facts, like you said. We are looking to prove it, and by pointing out something like a serial killer. Or goose pulling. Or this one guy that actually did hunt humans. It's depraved sociopath. It doesn't prove that we are the warring hunter. It's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. We want to find the evidence of it. Because we're not good at feeling safe. We're geared to so many different kinds of anxieties. We need to be aware of our surroundings. We need to know where the threats are coming from because that is human nature. Human nature is to protect ourselves and those we love from the things that would do us harm. And I think that it's a very necessary step in that process to ask if the things that would do us harm might be each other. They only might be. They don't have to be. And that's not just a story. It's not just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.